0: listening to the jersey guys podcast the show that talks about hard rock heavy metal aor and west coast music in-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap so settle in and turn it up now here are your hosts tom and mark
1: Hey everybody, this is Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys podcast. Welcome to a brand new episode. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always. And uh, today we've got special guest Ashley Mitchell from the band Vane. Uh, Tom, uh, how do you think this one went?
0: I was very happy with this. He uh, went through the whole catalog, the beginnings of the band. Uh, he was a great guest because he's been there for virtually everything from beginning to current. And uh, I thought it was a terrific uh, show.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, you and I, I know are, are huge Vane fans, uh, you know, especially the debut uh, of course, but, uh, they've got what, seven, seven albums now, eight albums now. If you count this solo solo album, album, which which is pretty much
0: a Vane album. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's so, uh, yeah, I mean, they've got a great catalog of music and, uh, I've been a fan of, of a lot of the albums and, uh, you know, beyond the the debut, but uh, yeah, it was great talking to him. And like you said, he was there for everything. It's not like, uh, you know.
0: He was a good historian, remembered everything, and uh, it was an excellent show, I thought.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, let's get right to this interview with uh, special guest Ashley Mitchell from Vane. Hey, Ashley, uh, welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight.
2: Absolutely. Great to be here.
1: This is a, a real good one because uh, Tom and I are, are huge uh, Vane fans for many years. And uh, we're going to cover the whole history of the, the band, if we could. <laughs> oh.
0: So if you have about four okay, hours wow. to... You, have about you guys are going to
2: test my memory. <laughs> yes, right? yes. Oh, my God.
1: Well, one of the things we like to do on our podcast is, is you know, we get... A lot of guests on and it's like we don't want to just sit there and say hey what are you guys doing currently or what do you got coming up and then that's it you know we, we kind of like to start at the beginning and kind of work our way forward go through the albums and give you know the listener like a whole you know background of, of the musician we're talking to so kind of in that spirit i guess i'll start and i just wanted to go back to even prior to Vein. um Let's talk about you know Ashley Mitchell and how you got into music and all that stuff, and then we'll go into you know the formation of Veen. But let's go back early in those those early days.
2: The early days. So in Tommy and Jamie and I all went to high school together. So we were same same class, same everything. And my first experience playing music, I was one of those kids who came to the to the party late. Uh, I I loved music. And I wanted to be a musician. My dad was a piano player, but he never, ever, you know, taught me to play music at all because his parents had forced him to play music. So he kind of resented them for that. So I was 16 when I got my first guitar, really late in the game. But I loved music. I loved my musician friends. And all I wanted to do was be on stage with them. So I had an opportunity our senior year. We put this little band together to perform our senior year for the the class. And nobody wanted to sing. And I said, I'll sing. I didn't care. I just wanted to be on stage. I'm not a great singer, you know. (laughs) We put together a list of like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Motley Crue and all the stuff we were listening to at the time. And I just got a, you know, I got a cool pair of spandex, like leopard spandex and a mesh shirt and went on stage. And, you know, I didn't knock it out of the park, but the rest of the guys did. (laughs) So that was really my first kind of band experience, but it did ignite my fire to want to be in a band and, and continue to kind of uh because i was trying to learn how to play guitar but trying to learn how to play guitar in the age of eddie van halen was really really difficult right i could barely do my jimmy page leads you know let alone those eddie stuff so i kind of ended up on bass by default so i i was uh living with a woman And uh, she was good friends with Davey. And Davey was in a terrible, like, rollover car accident, right? And uh, he couldn't work. And because he couldn't work, he, you know, he lost his apartment. So he came to live with us. And we just became really, really great friends. He's just like, can you play anything? You know, I'm thinking of starting this band because he was in a couple bands already in the Bay Area and i said well you know i i kind of play guitar and, and so i tried playing trying out a guitar and i was just horrendous like not <laughs> even close to being the quality that they needed and we remained friends and they had a really great solid bass player uh his name was jeff barnacle at the time and but he you know he had a family he was a contractor And the idea of being in a band, you know, full time and dedicating your life to it was just not for him, so he left the band and left all his equipment and everything. Just said, "Yeah, if you find somebody, you know, just you can use my stuff until you know they get their own." And Mm. I didn't have any stuff, so you know, Davey literally put a bass in my hand and said, "Okay, learn how to play it, and you could be in my band." Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, so, well, I guess this was was this around like nineteen
2: eighty six or so? The, no this this was eighty this was eighty five. Okay. Yeah this was this was problem. I can't tell you when in eighty five, but it was definitely eighty five. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when did when did Vane actually form and you guys kind of get out there and start playing shows?
2: Well that ye- that year eighty five, uh, Davey had. He had been ex- doing some demos and things and playing with some different guys. He didn't really have a name yet. He knew he wanted to do a solo thing. He was just a guitar player in bands at that time uh, and did the very first Vane demo uh, with Kirk Hammett producing it. None of the none of the No Respect era members were in the band at that time. It was all just friends. And it wasn't really called Vane. That demo ended up being titled a Vane demo. You know, like the very first Vane demo. Yeah. Um, but the, it was he was still kind of trying to find his way as a singer and as a songwriter. And it was kind of more of a grand experiment to see if he could, you know, pull it off, essentially. Right. And that it was he did. He did really well. Kirk did really well. Um, none of the songs are, we never did any of the songs, uh, you know, subsequently. They're all on demos someplace. I haven't heard them in years. I couldn't even tell you the names of them at this point. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that that kind of uh, was the very very beginning. So then he started putting the band together, and, and again, Tommy and Jamie and I, you know, we were friends in high school, and I kept telling him, "I go, dude, you got to get Tommy. He's a great drummer. He's a great drummer." But, you know, Davey had come from a scene, he was a little bit older than us, where he played with a lot of great players. And the idea of having all these guys fresh out of high school that didn't have a tremendous amount of ex, uh, experience in bands was not too exciting to him at all. But as, you know, the, the lack of talent, I guess you would say, uh, in Santa Rosa, where we grew up, uh, was apparent, he gave Tommy a try, and Tommy is outstanding right and he was he was back then he is now and he fit in uh right away so tommy joined the band uh our guitar player danny west was was kind of brought to the table we knew about danny danny was really into thrash metal and kind of punk stuff and like motorhead is his favorite band in the world and merciful fate and he and our manager katrina Sardowski at the time kind of got danny interested at first it's like the idea of wearing makeup and having this big flamboyant things like no way that's not for me but he wanted to be in a band and he recognized that that davy's talent right and he recognized that this band could actually do something so he kind of came into the fold and again, I was, you know, struggling to kind of, you know, learn the bass and and keep up. But you know, I'm <laughs> pretty nice guy to be around and I really wanted I wanted to do it more than I have the talent to do it. Right. So we just started get putting these rehearsals together and Davey told me years later, he goes, you know, after some of those early rehearsals, man, I would go home and I'd get bam magazine and I'd just scour the ads for guitar, you know, guitar player wanted ads and see what I could find out there. Cause it was so bad, you know, Dan, Danny coming from thrash metal was playing everything on 10 always no sense of dynamics. You know, Tommy was always solid. And I was just literally struggling to find the notes you
1: know (laughs) now what was the scene like at that time because you know northern california everybody thinks about the the thrash scene that came out of there and you know the the bands the metallicas and and stuff like that so what was you know at the time you guys were forming what was that scene was there a a pocket for like the glam or the you know that style that you guys were going
2: towards uh no but more interestingly is the scene, the musician scene in Santa Rosa at the time, all revolved around Rebel Records. So Rebel Records was a record store that our manager had started. And she started getting into promotion and management. That record store was an alternative record store. There was like three record stores in in the Bay Area at that time where you could find heavy metal records or punk records or you know anything on the alternative spectrum right okay and it was rebel records and uh the record vault in san francisco and i think there was another record vault in walnut creek at the time so in the north bay that was it so it attracted you know musicians and people that were into these styles of music that you couldn't find you know down at warehouse or tower records so that store you know in any given day like the guys from uh Larry and Ralph from Victims Family, a great punk band out of Sonoma County, they'd be hanging out there. Uh, at the time, <laughs> Doyle Bramhall Jr. was living in Santa Rosa, oh, wow. right, and he was hanging out there. I mean, at that time, he had a mohawk and like you know black eyeliner, and he was like this little punk kid.
1: Oh, really?
0: Wow. Um, Paul he play Taylor played with Roger Waters too.
2: Doyle Bramhall. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's fantastic. Unbelievable guitar player, uh, Paul Taylor from from Winger. He was he was kind of our hero. He led the way in, in Santa Rosa. He was in a band called Stark Raving Mad, that anybody in Santa Rosa just thought was amazing. You know, Eric Martin was in the band, uh, and Paul Taylor, and he then he got a gig with uh, Aldo Nova, touring with Aldo Nova, uh, and so he was kind of like our. Our, you know, everyone kind of wanted to be Paul in Santa Rosa. But, he, you know, you, you would see you would see him there from time to time. So we had this little kind of, you know, record store scene, you know, for people who just wanted to do this different stuff. And that's where we would go and hang out, hear different music and meet other players in town. Uh, Ron and Chris from the Sea Hags, too. They would be there. They were from Santa Rosa also. Uh, one of my
0: all-time favorite albums. The fact that there was never a second one always killed me.
2: Yeah, those guys were volatile. <laughs> no, I know the whole story That's behind. It. I know why there wasn't
0: a second album. It just annoys me there yeah. wasn't because I liked it so yeah. much. I know why there well, wasn't.
2: <laughs> it's funny because, you know, they, they moved to Haight uh, right around when we did too. And Davey and Ron and Chris and I would get together at this restaurant on Haight Street, this Mexican food restaurant called Pyramid, right? And uh, whenever we'd get together, we'd go, Ron would say, okay, I'm calling a metal meeting. And first order of business, everyone needs to agree. John Bonham is the greatest rock drummer of all time. And we'd all say, I agree, agree, agree. And then we'd start our metal meeting and just talk about rock and eat guacamole and chips. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I might add, you're not the only failed guitar player that became a relatively famous bass player. Noel, Red- <laughs> Noel Redding also had the same uh, plight as you in the Jimi <laughs> yeah, Hendrix experience. I, I'll, <laughs> yes,
2: I'll, I'll make an argument that every bass player out there is a failed guitar player. <laughs> I, probably
0: <laughs> somewhere around 75 to 90%. I think there are there are legitimately some guys who really started to love the instrument at a young age. Yeah. But I think <laughs> in, in hard rock music, there's a huge percentage of guys yeah. that had the same plight as yourself.
2: You know, every time I see Billy Sheehan play, I, he's a great player, amazing, all this technique, I go, God, his band needs a bass player. Well,
0: yeah, and that's...
2: <laughs> That's, you know, someone needs, needs to hold it down a little once in a while. Well, he is like playing yeah.
1: guitar on bass, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Been, you know,
0: it's just as a side note. As popular as he is, there there is a lot of purists that don't like him for that reason. But and I I, I get it, yeah, because he doesn't exactly uh, stay in the pocket that often, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> So,
1: uh, well, let's, let's move on to the, the band and, uh, you know, you now you're, you're playing shows, you know, maybe you did a couple demos and I guess it's around 1988 and, uh, the whole thing with the recording contract and that whole elusive thing for so many bands comes about. Um, how did you guys end up signing with Island Records and how did that all come about? Uh,
2: <laughs> well, you know, we, we were doing the club scene, we were making the trips to LA, We refused to actually kind of abandon San Francisco and go to L.A. because we just felt like, you know, down there, it was just a sea of. I, I don't know. It was it was it was madness in San Francisco. We had a great fan base. We weren't really influenced by, you know, the stuff that was going on around us. Because what was going on around us was, you know, thrash metal was being born. There were punk shows across the street from, you know, places we were playing. Faith No More would be next door while we were playing, you know, the club adjacent to it. You know, there was a lot of just different stuff. And we just felt like being, it was just a more creative environment, right? I mean, L.A. has a lot of distractions and it's easy to, You know want to just jump on a bandwagon and we just felt more focused and more creative in san francisco so we stayed in san francisco and our manager katrina stardofsky just and our 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 lawyer at the time brian rohan who was uh you know he was everybody's lawyer in the 60s and 70s from boston to janice to journey to the grateful dead i mean just super you know just i mean just super famous guy in the in the music industry right he's actually famous for punching david geffen too in a party one (laughs) night. just total character but those two worked their asses off to get you know our demo demos heard by the record company executives and you know before or after poison was signed you know, we we'd be in conversation with these record companies, like, yeah, if you guys could just be a little bit more like Poison, you know, maybe try changes your songs and making them more in more major keys and, oh, and doing that, and I'm like, oh, you know, and then GNR got signed, right? And then we started hearing, if you guys could just be a little bit more like GNR, you know, and as, so at one point we had. Uh, and now you're really testing my memory because I don't remember who the other record companies were at the time that were interested, but by the time, uh, Island came around. So Steve Pross was our A guy at, at Island, and he had been hanging out for a couple months, kind of watching us coming to shows and seeing what was developing with us and how things were coming along and establishing a relationship with Katrina and Brian. And, There was another, it could have been Columbia or one of the big ones, CBS, something like that. They were kind of interested in giving us a development deal, right? Yeah, to try and do demos, do different things. And we just felt like we were ready to go. And when Steve and Island finally pulled the trigger, they said all the right things. Mm -hmm. They said, we want you to go in and make a record that sounds like you do live and they gave us the outline of like you two's career And this is how we build careers at island you know our fir- our goals for the first record is you know 100,000 sales mm-hmm. and you're going to you're going to tour and you're going to do this and we're going to do that and then we're going to build this career step by step but the, the the foundation of building this career is you guys are a great live band we need a record that sounds like you do on stage right mm-hmm. Literally to the point where we're, you know, we're leaving to go to Montreal, Canada to the studio to record No Respect. And Davey hasn't talked to anybody about what songs they want on the record, what they want it to sound like. I I mean, it was like, hey, guys, what what do you expect? What are the expectations here? And literally the expectation was go make a record that sounds like you guys do live. (laughs)
1: Leave it to your own devices, huh?
2: Yeah, exactly. So did this, I've always
0: been interested in this when i first got this record uh, i remember it when it first came out the sound of the band was so different from everything else i mean there was uh, at least to these years a, a little elements of punk a little elements of san francisco hippie um hard rock was was this all influences like how did that sound that became the signature sound
2: of the band come about (laughs) <laughs> I think that that's the magic that happens when you get five people in a room together, right? That's just the sound that we had, were capable of at the time. That's the sound that, you know, D- Davey was the primary songwriter, very prolific, had a very clear idea of what it was he wanted to do, right? So he, he wrote all the material, uh, but he, he chose players that were young and hungry, in my case, not great (laughs) i was literally doing the best i could to keep up you know danny did very much come from a thrash uh background tommy played in a punk band called the four-time losers for years around sonoma county so yeah there was this punk thrash you know element and then of course jamie was you know just a eddie van halen randy rhodes follower fan and just really brought that element of precision guitar playing and aerobic guitar playing. And, and it really just an incredible sense of phrasing and melody at times, too. So it was this melding of these different, you know, talent levels uh, coming together. Uh, there was no discussion really about it. It's just kind of what happened with the chemistry of the five of us.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess it's, it's like you said, everybody, you know, had a little bit of a different thing they were influenced by. So I guess when you, you said you throw them all together, I guess it kind of makes sense now.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: W- was there any problems with the look of the band matching the sound? Because that's something that's been out there in other podcasts I've heard. I just listened to something the other day that Eddie Trunk was talking about, that the sound was tougher than the photographs used on the the CD or the album. Uh, is there any truth to that? Or did you, did you guys feel that or,
2: you know, we, so in, in 86 and 87, I think that, uh, Henry rocks especially influenced a lot of bands. It was, it was so over the top and it was so cool. And I think that, uh, you know people wanted to take that and even take it a step further because it was so outrageous and that's kind of what we did however so this is kind of the one of the things one of our i guess regrets you would say is that that photo session that look of the band that was presented on no respect was actually a look that was we were fading out but the record company did want to go forward with with those that set of photographs we had other sets of photographs where the you know the hair had come down and it was just a little bit more tone, i wouldn't say it's down. tougher Edgy, it was, edgier yeah uh, no i would just say it was just a little it was just a little cooler and a little bit more rock and roll and, and a little less glam i mean we were still wearing makeup and stuff but more eyeliner, less, you know, lipstick and, yeah. you know, rouge and, and things like that. So, yeah, I agree. There is an absolute disconnect with the sound of the band and the look of the band. However, the one thing that it, it did is it it almost kind of, I, I would say it was a benefit to us in a way. Because we did get the people who liked the look and then kind of got used to the sound. I mean, let's face it, people either like Vane or they don't right? Sound wise, right,
0: very, very kind of, pol- yes. kind of
2: polarizing people either love us or hate us. And people, a lot of people just don't say, Oh, they're okay. Right. They either just like Davey's voice and the songs and the look, or they don't. So yeah, I, I, I would say there, there was definitely a disconnect, but it was just, we were caught in a, in a, in a change. And we went with a particular set of photographs that in retrospect, I wish we had updated
0: what happened between the first album and the second album? We know there's a lot of stories out there as to why that album got shelved. Uh, the first album seemed to have done really well. I, I know back in Brooklyn, where it, I it grew sold up, it all did very well.
2: Yeah, it, all all hundred thousand copies that were printed were sold, and and very few cutouts. We met our goal. We you know they established hundred thousand sales for us. It, they were all sold. There was, it never went into a reprint uh, during our, while we were on the road touring for No Respect, Island Records was sold, right? So Chris Blackwell had owned it, it was the, one of the last privately owned uh, record companies. And it was sold to Warner Brothers, uh, I think. I don't know, you'd have to check my facts yes, because on that we, we had Mike yeah.
0: Oliveri on from uh, Leatherwolf who was on Island Records. And he recited this story that you're about to t- chapter and verse and it, yes it was sold to them i remember
2: that yeah yeah and and you know they were they were i mean we were on the road meeting with people you know meet and greets meeting the a and people out across you know the people that go take your albums and promote them at the record companies across the country and fans and they're like we can't find your record in the store there are no records in the store we love your band we want to buy the record where can I get it? And we kept hearing this over and over. And as the tour went on, it was kind of getting worse and worse. Well, I guess in the, uh, in the transfer of the company, one thing that happened was there was a, uh, a transfer, or supposed to be a transfer of logistics, right. Of distributing the records and getting them out there. And there for a couple of months that was not happening at all. You know, they had all of this work they had to do with relabeling and, in the right barcode and all of these things going. So the records were sitting in in warehouses at, at one point and just not being distributed, right? So that that was obviously very frustrating, but we were still, you know, we did two tours of the United States. We did England, we did Japan, and we were getting all of our, um, everything, We all our gains was just grassroots. It was from touring, right? Island was not great at promotion. In fact, uh, Davey ran into Rick Rubin one time, like right after we were signed. He said, "Hey, hey, Davey, I heard you got signed to Island Records." Davey's like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, we're so excited." He goes, "Yeah, their promotion's not very good. You should watch out for them." <laughs> it's kind of this, <laughs> this harbinger of, uh, you know, what was. No, we've us. heard this so,
0: before because we've had a couple of different artists, one of which was. Um, the singer in Leatherwolf, and we've heard this a couple of other times about how bad the promotion of Island Records was.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, and and there was there was internal conflict too. Like when we did, uh, who's watching? No, no, it was Beat the Bullet actually. So there was a scene in Beat the Bullet where two of the girls, the extras, the models, were kind of dancing very close to each other, right? And they referred to it as the lesbian scene. And they were they were not going to have that video released with a lesbian scene in it. And we're like, you you got to be kidding me! I mean, it's just it's just it's rock and roll. And like, nope, we we cannot we can't. And so there, it was probably an extra 2 weeks of trying to get that that video done just to get the edit done that they wanted so they could take the lesbian scene out <laughs> that sounds more 1959 right. yeah. than 1989 yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's crazy <laughs> exactly i mean God, you guys don't, obviously don't understand what you're dealing with here wow. so well, I actually Again. got to
1: see you guys on the first tour. Um, I guess it would have been the summer of 1990. Uh, I saw you guys at the uh, the legendary Lamour in Brooklyn, and oh, yeah. uh, also at a show in Jersey, a little club called Studio One. And uh, mm-hmm. it was actually two nights in a row. Uh, you guys were uh, were the headliners, and you had a Spread Eagle opening for you guys. Do you recall that tour?
2: Uh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. No, it was L- Lamore Playing Lamour's was always. I think we played there twice, ultimately over the the two tours. One of the, I think the second time around, uh, we played with Soundgarden. Yeah, so that was that was kind of an interesting bill.
1: Yeah, Tom Tom was a Brooklyn guy. Tom grew up in Brooklyn, so uh,
0: grew up in Brooklyn. Saw many shows at uh, Lamour's. so many shows at. Did you guys ever play the Cat Club?
2: Oh yeah. Uh, again, I think twice we played the cover okay. at, at
0: those same two tours that you were just talking about. Yes, okay. correct. Yeah, yeah. So if you could tell us about the second album, because that's always a point of a lot of discussion with with Vane fans as to what led to that album being shelved for so long, and with the success of of a debut album,
2: what why was that album shelved? After after the sale of Island, and and you know. We get off tour. We were actually we were scheduled to go to Europe and do a tour of Europe, and we had a new president. His name I can't recall, but he came over from Polygram, and he, you know, he was the guy who was there for uh, Motley Crue, and who else is on Polygram? Whoever else was on. So he knew what he was doing, right? And he knew rock, and he gave us a little hope that the next record was going to be, you know. And he said, "Hey, listen, we Island screwed up." you know, we take responsibility. This album was not re- promoted the way it should have been done. Let's do this right, but we need to do it right with the new album, right? So let's scrap this tour of Europe and let's get you in the studio right away, recording the follow-up to No Respect. And then, you know, by the time you're done, I will have Island in, in Ship Shape to, you know, promote a rock record. We're like, okay, let's do it, right? So we found our producer, Jeff Hend- Hendrickson, uh, and went to l a to record all those strangers. all those strangers there was there was a few newer songs on there, but a lot of those songs had been written already, like right around uh, you know right before no respect. So there was some stuff that just we didn't feel worked on, no respect, and there was a few new things. So I don't know in retrospect if the song that the songs in general were as strong as they they could have been given a little more time. Uh, But given how prolific Davey was, I mean, we could do another record right now of just the tunes from, you know, 1985 to 1988 that no one's heard before. And it would be really good. (laughs) I mean, he was, he was that, you know, and and from time to time as, as the, you know, the years have gone on, we've dipped back into the old catalog and done stuff So we go and we get that record done and that record uh, just from a just pure recording and vibe standpoint, we had the wrong producer, the wrong studio. He, you know, he wanted to be home by seven every night. You don't do that to, you know, a rock band, 20 year olds, right? We're not on that kind of, yeah, exactly. We're not on that kind of schedule. So it was a bad fit from a production standpoint. But that being said, I mean, I think there are some, outstanding tracks on all those strangers right oh, uh, yeah i agree you know wake up is amazing love drug is amazing planet's turning i mean there's some really good stuff on that on that record here comes
0: lonely is my favorite song on it
2: here comes lonely is and here comes lonely is one of those ones that was from pre no respect and it was being considered for no respect uh but we just felt like it didn't fit on there Lo- so love,
0: love drug is a great song too
2: yeah I, yeah in fact we'll we'll be doing that one at the whiskey next uh, this coming saturday friday
1: well i was going to mention that actually but uh i mean by the time we uh we roll this that that show will have been uh in history of being in the, the rearview mirror but uh we'll, oh, okay we'll, as okay. we get to the end of the, the, the podcast we'll talk a little bit more about any future things you guys got coming up
2: okay so we get we get the record done uh you know, it wasn't it wasn't the greatest experience, but oh well. During that, as we're as we're kind of finishing up and mixing, the president, who came from PolyGram, who said you know who knew rock, who gave us this new direction and hope, left Island, <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Blackwell, who used to own it, uh, decides he's going to come back and run it right. And you know he knows he knows reggae, he knows jazz. He's they had a, a burgeoning kind of hip hop label called Delicious Vinyl that they was doing really well, uh, but he just he just didn't know rock. Right. And so they, they print up the, the promotional cassettes and they send them out to the press. And two weeks later, they drop us. They drop us. They drop anthrax. They drop the Buck Pets. They drop Leather Wolf. They, they clear their rock you know, roster cuz he says like we're not a rock album we don't know what to do with this right so there we were i mean this is what 1990 at the time yeah i think it was supposed to come out in you know 91 91 90, yeah yeah and obviously here comes grunge you know we were right on the we they they said okay well you know we'll give you the masters you can go shop these so Brian and Katrina started shaking the bushes to see if we could get any interest but every A and R guy at that point was running around looking for the for the next Nirvana. They wanted nothing to do with any band that didn't sound like Nirvana. Right? It was such a trend fixed A uh, and R scene back then, for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, I remember one of my friends actually was writing for a, uh, a local, um, magazine or news music newspaper in here in New Jersey, New York. Uh, they were called rough mix magazine. And, uh, he actually had the promo cassette of all those strangers, um, to do a review and everything. And, you know, obviously it just never
2: happened. Yes. And if you look at that cassette, this is how wonderful their, uh, their promotion. Well, I don't know what department would have been in charge of this, the spelling department maybe, but, it, uh, on one of the, I think it's on the spine. It says all those stangers.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that kind of says it all, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> so this album now got shelved for quite a long time. I'm sure the band was aware of the fact it was bootlegged like crazy all over. Oh yeah, eBay and the internet, and um, it it finally saw the light of day. I have it as a extra disc on the um, the enough rope album as a as a two for two for one in japan was that the first time it actually got a proper release yeah in 2009 was the
2: first proper release yeah yeah after years and years of just kind of sitting there doing nothing
0: so we we move on to uh move on it what well, could you tell us well, about actually, that
1: actually, Tom? Before we we do that, um, I wanted to get a little bit of a timeline from you, Ashley, about because after that didn't happen, uh, all those strangers, of course. What what happened? The, the band Road Crew. Um, yeah, I'm sure, like most people who are fans of Vane, will know about it, but maybe some won't. You know what what was the timeline with the the second album you guys getting dropped from Island, and then the whole Road Crew thing coming about?
2: Uh, pr- pretty quickly actually after you know after we got dropped we were trying to kind of figure out what to do uh one idea was to just get in a station wagon and just start going you know across the united states and playing and just try and you know drum up some kind of interest uh the other idea was to go and and well they were they were shopping all the strangers you know already but there, were, there was no interest and then you know, uh, our manager gets a control uh, call from Steven Adler's manager, and said, "You know, S- Stevie's—he's clean now. He's got his shit together. He wants to start a band. He loves Fane. He would love to start a band with Davy." And, I mean, Davy is a, a fiercely, fiercely loyal person. You know, a band is not just a band to him; uh, it's family, right? He is very. He has a very, very close circle of friends and it's pretty much is made up of the people that he, he plays with. So he's a very, you know, private person in, in that way. And so the idea of breaking a thing, you know, just was a, a nightmare. It was kind of an, it was an opportunity, but it was a total nightmare for him. And everybody else, right? However, you know, Brian Rohan, our lawyer, essentially sat him down and said listen we have no opportunities here nobody's calling us back on this record nothing is going on this is an opportunity to go work with somebody who has a name in the business and where we could actually drum up some kind of record label business my advice to you is to say yes and take everybody you can from the band with you and obviously that meant that Tommy." Was not going to be a part of this right and but we were all very very close friends and, and i remember meeting tommy hun sound after we all kind of got the news of this and i just burst into tears you know Vane was done you know tommy's one of my best friends he was kind of left in the lurch in fact initially uh i said no to to road crew uh, and Danny, Danny kind of viewed the whole thing as an opportunity because Danny was really starting to come into his own as a songwriter. And Vane didn't have a lot of room for other songwriters because Davey was so prolific and he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do. So Danny was ready to start something up. Tommy joined uh, a band called Shine with, uh, with Danny. And actually I joined too. But you know, living with my, you know, my back in my dad's again and, ha- and looking for a job, I got so fucking depressed that I just called up Davey and I said, you still need a bass player and essentially went down there to go check it out and then end up joining Road Crew as the last uh, piece of that puzzle. Ah, OK.
1: How many yeah. shows did, did the band actually play together? I mean, I know you guys played a show in New York City at the Limelight. And yes. I think I remember, there's actually like a video on like YouTube of the show. Um, but I think I was watching it at one point and Davey says something about this is like only the band's third show at that point. Um so how Yeah, many-
2: we did four total. Four total. <laughs> yeah, wow. four show- yeah, we did we did a show in San Francisco, a show in Katati up in San- in Sonoma County near Santa Rosa, and then a show at a place called the Boardwalk in Roseville, uh near Sacramento, California, and then the limelight. Oh wow. That was it. Yep. Wow.
1: So yeah, so all right, so well, that that obviously didn't last long. That helps me with the timeline because I never really knew how long that that band lasted, how far it actually went.
2: It was a it was about a year, a year and a half. Okay. So I mean, a lot of great songs were written during that time. Uh, that show, at the limelight, was definitely the best collective performance uh, that we did. I mean, Steve, Stevie was on that night, and he was really the only question mark uh, most of the time. Uh, and yeah, that was, it was a very dark period, especially discovering that he was not clean any longer and having to deal with that. Uh, but it produced a lot of really good music that, that you know, that obviously surfaced later on other albums. Was the intent of that to come
0: out as an actual band? I, I, you, obviously you guys were touring with the intent of that being signed. And since you had an original Guns N' Roses member, why did that not not
2: happen? <laughs> okay. This is an interesting story. We, we were, we were very close. In fact, Geffen had uh verbally agreed to sign us and we were sitting in the, in Stevie's living room one evening, uh, with the A&R person from Geffen. I mean, we had done a, a private showcase for John Kolodner. So we had his stamp of approval, uh, again, back in Stevie's living room, hanging out there, talking about, you know, what the records going to look like, what we're going to do, and kind of getting all the logistics going. And there's a knock on the door. We're in the living room and the front doors of the living room. Stevie opens the door and it's his drug dealer and he hands him a bag of heroin in front of everybody. And and the people from Geffen just looked at around at us and they just got up and they left.
0: That's something I, I, out of a, a grade B movie that you,
2: <laughs> I, I, I mean, come on, you know, and, and, you know, and I know Stevie feels horrible about it. In fact, when, you know, whenever any of us see him to this day, he always apologizes for how he fucked everything up. But I mean, we were like so close once again.
0: So now the band regroups as vain again and uh, move on surfaces. How
2: did that all come about? Uh we we kind of moved back up to San Francisco and we needed a drummer. Uh Tommy was now in entrenched in these other bands and projects that he was doing. Uh and we we stumbled across Danny Fury who used to be in the Lords of the New Church. And he was interested in being in the band, so we brought him over from England and it just worked. It just had kind of this you know, cool, different feel that we really hadn't had before. And Davy was starting to write these songs that were a little bit more, you know, from his roots, I guess, more like seventies style. A little
0: a little hippy dippy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, because he he was definitely steeped in in fact funny thing is it's like what Davy really listens to is like sixties and seventies Motown and RB. That's that's like his wheelhouse that's his his influence but then you know this 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 era of heavy metal from 1979 to 1984 came along that just affected all of this you know, from van halen to judas priest to, you know and i and scorpions and all these bands and we just so that i think that was the catalyst for the band to start making music like that but you know he like the rest of us were steeped in 70s rock and in his case 70s kind of r&b so he started kind of moving that direction songwriting wise because at this point when you're making records and you can make anything you want and there's no expectations you're allowed to be an artist i think that was the good thing about our careers i look back nobody has ever ever told us what to do everything that we've recorded and everything we've put out has been exactly what we wanted to do as artists.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't. That's that's something that's you know, so many bands. Practically nobody can say that.
2: Yeah, I know. And there, and except for you know, like Bowie can say that, right? Neil Young can say that. But they, I'm sure they had fights, but they still did exactly what they wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So from an artistic standpoint, there's always been complete freedom. So yeah, we we went down that rabbit hole, and honestly, I mean. I, that style of music is, like, when I go back and I listen to the catalog, I listen to Move On It, and I listen to In From Out Of Nowhere, you know, the Davey Vane solo album, which really is a Vane album, uh, probably more than anything else, because that's just what I like. So
1: That's a great album. I mean, yeah, I, I knew that was kind of like, I, I had seen some interviews with Davey where he said it's, it's you know, it's essentially it was a Vane album. Um, but yeah, I mean, at that end, it's a great album at that.
0: You guys all played on it too, right?
2: Uh, move on it. We're talking about
0: well, well the Davy
2: the Davy uh, Vane. The, I'm the, sorry. The, the oh, okay. We're, sk- we're skipping up to the, so the da- the Davy Vane uh, solo record is is really uh, Louis Sonor, Davey and I. At that point, that was kind of the core band, and then we had we had a guitar player, Craig Bearhorst, who was playing with us a bit. He's on a few of the tracks. But at that point, the, vein had boi- the, the band Vane had boiled down to just the three of us, really. So on on Fade, on the Davy Vane solo album, and on on the Line, the core the core members uh, are really Davy and Louie and I. So was your following at the time in Japan
0: strong? Because I know you had a deal with Polystar on these albums, which usually was at the time was a pretty pretty good deal for artists that weren't grunge artists to, to
2: have a deal yeah. like that yeah i mean no respect had done very well right and they were they were begging for some kind of follow-up right and so move on it was really kind of that was that was the intention i mean they came to us and said we want to put another vein album out okay right and and um uh, Fade, as well, they released over there. In fact, uh, Danny had just done his first solo album called Taste the Sounds at the same time. Fade came out, and Davey and Danny went to Japan together to do kind of a promo tour of those two albums.
0: Now, would you say Fade was pretty similar
2: in style to uh, Move On It? Would I say... No. Fade is is this kind of weird... uh, So we had just started playing with Louis. And Danny Fury had some issues, you know, as a lot of rock music musicians do. And it was becoming less and less reliable. And we were introduced via a friend to Louis Sonor, who I mean he was just an undiscovered by great talent. And Davey and Louis and I essentially locked ourselves in a studio and just learned, like, like up until, the, this is how I described it, up until that point, I considered myself a bass player. After a year of playing with Davey and Louie locked in a studio, I consider myself a musician. We would go to rehearsal and we would just play like 30-minute jams, exploring different keys, exploring different, you know, tempos and rhythm patterns and all of this stuff. And it was just fun. It was, it was like, you know, the three of us were the Grateful Dad or something, right? <laughs> and, and it really it was like, it was kind of like learning how to play music again, and getting to know each other as players. And Davey was becoming more and more accomplished at singing and playing at the same time. And, and so we come to do uh, vain fade, right? And like those jams, I mean, you can hear a little bit of the influence of it on, on things like Languish and uh, I would say Powder Blue even.
0: That's a
1: great
2: um, Yeah, Yeah, Powder Blue is probably one of my favorites.
0: Well, it is one of my favorite And Shooting Star from the, from the second album appeared on, on this album.
2: Yes, yeah, that's when we started the kind of the tradition of – Because remember this—that second album had not been released. Right,
0: so you could dust it off and use
2: it on a new album. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, "Planets Turning" was on all the strangers too, and that appeared on "Move On It." So, because we knew there were great songs on there that we kind of want to present, and we didn't ever see, because at that point, you know, Island still owned the masters to all the strangers, and. You know we, we we could re-record them but we couldn't release those actual recordings so we started kind of re-recording some of that stuff that's a clever approach yeah
1: where did you change did you change the songs totally or were they pretty faithful to those original versions
2: uh i planets turning is absolutely faithful uh let me see what we, yeah no i'd say in in both cases they were were absolutely faithful to them yeah now we spoke about the,
0: the, Davy Vane solo album a little bit. What could you tell us about one of my personal favorites in the catalog, uh, on the line, kind of to me, hawking back a little bit to the early original
2: sound. Yes. So after the, the Davy Vane solo album, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit more before I go into on the line, that album, uh you know, it was essentially me and Davey in the studio, right? And I love the Davey Vane solo because I finally got to, you know, I wanted to play keyboards and he let me, I wanted to play acoustic guitar and he let me, he was letting me do all of these things and have more influence on the arrangement and the tone selection. So from a creative standpoint, I loved that record because it was something that if I was to do a record of my music, it would be more something like that, right? So I, I loved that but i think it went a little too far in that direction and we started hearing it from some fans and different things i think davy just started feeling like okay now's the time to kind of move this ship in more of a direction of where we originated from right so yes there there was a conscious uh decision on davy's part to kind of you know make that more of a hard rock record uh, and move in that direction. And I, I think it's my favorite record on is it the really? line. Oh yeah. On the line. I think Sonically It's it's beautiful. I think the songwriting is the most honest songwriting. I've ever heard Davy do If I I described it once you know, during the the pandemic in the be- beginning of the pandemic I started writing these uh song memoirs if you will right for there's there's a facebook page called the vain army and they were all saying you know tell us about this song tell us about this song so i started doing these writings because you know we had nothing else to do right and when i when i got to uh i think they asked about drag me and i had to give a little background kind of on the album i feel like it, it this album was the first of the last Vein albums. <laughs> when we did that album, I thought that that was gonna be it. I really did, I felt like that was gonna end. And every album subsequently, I feel like, well, this could be the last Vein album. But, Davey, but Davey's songwriting, if you look at the songs, he's either looking back at his triumphs and regrets, or he, and there's a couple songs that are looking forward with some kind of optimism. And there are some songs about just kind of struggling right now and getting through the day. And they're all really kind of, uh, you know, they're about relationships and this and that. I, it's the closest thing to a concept album I think we've ever come to just because of that perspective. I, I know what he was struggling with and it was coming out in his, in his songs. And like I said, the honesty on that album, uh, I i haven't seen anything like it before or since.
0: Interesting. I'm a big fan of the album, but I'm going to be an obnoxious fan and tell you I don't agree that it's the best album. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we haven't got to the best album. We're coming up well, on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, well, 2008, um, in between, you know, after uh, On the Line and i saw you guys at rocklahoma out in uh prior oklahoma oh yeah yeah, yeah. that was a great show mm-hmm. that was actually i yeah. think in uh, correct me if i'm wrong wasn't that the uh the then when they had the big storm and all the side stages fell down
2: that was the day after yeah the day after okay. absolutely yeah yep. the day yeah. after we played that happened uh, yeah and i think one person was killed actually yeah
1: yeah no, i know i remember uh I think it was actually uh, I was I was actually taking photographs um, at the time, and Trickster was on the main stage, and uh, just in, during our last song, I think the the storm started rolling in. They kind of said everybody get off stage, and uh, we all ran, and I ran to the back where the the tent was for all the the press tent and everything, and. And We hung out there, and I remember the 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 the, the, the rain and the wind, and we were like, holding the the tent from flying away, <laughs> and it was it was crazy. <laughs> and then we come out after after all everything's over. After a while, we come out and we see the side stages are down, and it was it was crazy.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I was sitting in the airport with Triumph, oh, listening to really? talk about uh, uh, their stagecraft.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I could say I saw Triumph, uh, the, the one of the uh, what two two shows that they
2: did. Yeah, exactly. No, I I thought Triumph was fantastic that day. I really loved him. but I was I've been a fan since, you know, years ago. Allied Forces, I love that album.
0: Oh yeah, I just I was on board with them from like 79 78 going forward. Mhm. Tom's an old guy, you know. <laughs> so am I it's okay I'm a child of the 60s and 70s so I I can associate with Davey Vane's uh, inspirations (laughs)
2: exactly so now I want to move
0: on as the obnoxious fan and tell you about your best album which in my opinion is Enough Rope and the reason I feel that way is because it reminded me a lot of the debut only I thought it was better it was a real uh, sex dripped album sweaty type of hard rock album uh, in my opinion and yeah um, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was the the only album that really had that same sweaty sexy hard rock vibe as the first album and I think mm-hmm. actually song songwise wise I thought it even surpassed uh the first album so what could you tell us about it
2: uh, that's funny because this is uh, this is an era where I was, you know, I was I was starting my business and I was not very involved. There are four songs on that album that I did not play on. The only four songs that I have not played on, right? I've played on everything Vane's ever done except for those four songs on that album. Uh, I think it was intentional. I think Davey really did w- now want to get back to closer to a no respect sound even more than on the line. You know, at, at that point, you know, Tommy was kind of um, being more involved. I mean, there are songs on there that have Louie and Tommy on there, who, by the way, are like two really good friends now, and they're okay kind of sharing drumming duties uh you know and if if louie if, if tommy can't do a show you know louie's always willing to do it in fact louie helped us get ready uh for this upcoming show because tommy couldn't come up from la so uh there's it's very much a you know a, a family affair if you will that's cool uh yeah, so i mean and and on this album too i mean davy had some you know he had some strange experiences that led to some great songs uh, and he definitely wanted to kind of bring No Respect, uh, the ghost of No Respect into that album, I'll say. And and Danny, you know, Danny kind of came back and was more involved. And in, in fact, I think, um, what is it, Solid Gold? He co-wrote that song with with Davey, which I think is an absolute highlight on the album. Uh, but it's also, you know, there are songs that we, and Cindy's from the uh, road crew era right uh worship you is from the road crew era vain the song vain is from 1988 89 yeah 88 i believe uh distance of love was from a project that he was working on in europe called uh, delaney it was this weird i still don't understand what the project was It was like a recorded version of a vampire novel or something i i don't know It had a couple, a couple <laughs> different singers on it right davy was one of them i think yeah and and including davy's cousin too lana lane who's a, a fantastic artist in her own right uh but then but then the, the newer songs you know greener and triple x and hot stage lights
0: you skip you're skipping you're skipping my favorite song uh-oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Straight Tell me what Straight Kitten Burns. <laughs> okay. See, I did not play on that one and I and I'm I'm not actually that big of a fan of it and it's wow. not just because I didn't play on it. Uh, that's just, what I was uh, going to say, but you beat me yeah. to it. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. No, but, I, but I've heard that a lot of people do really love that song. And I I would I, I would say it is uh, you know, it's a well-written song. I love every song on this,
0: including the Japanese bonus track, which was Walk Away. I think that was a, was that a Road Cruise song too?
2: It was. Yeah, that was a Road Cruise song. In fact, I think that's even Stevie on that track.
0: Interesting. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to move on from
0: that and uh, we're going to move on to what was the last studio album called Rolling With The Punches?
1: 2017. Yes. Yep. hmm Yeah. <laughs>
2: So at this point in the in the vein, so everybody, you know, James Scott is now Delana Nova, right? He he has transitioned to she, and lives in Nashville, and you know Tommy lives in LA. I'm three hours away from the Bay Area, Uh, so this this is, and and Davey's probably going to kill me if he hears this, but I feel like this is more a Davey Vane solo album than anything we've ever done, right? Because it, it's very much, you know, uh, Tommy and I used to talk about this. This is, you know, why is it taking so long to get vein Records done? I go, listen, the only way they're gonna get done is if somebody goes to the studio with Davey. Like when, when we did, uh, uh, you know, In um, from out of nowhere, I was calling him up every day, said, let's go to the studio. Let's go do this, let's go do this. During on the line, Louie was saying, come on, Davey, let's go. Let's go mix some songs. Let's go get this done. Davey likes having friends around. He likes the, the clubhouse, the camaraderie, everything that goes into just being in a band. But he has this, this studio and not a lot of people around now. And he's still incredibly creative. So we work on songs. It's become a process where you know either Louie or I or Tommy and I will go in Davey will will teach us the songs. We'll learn them. Uh, we'll do some arrangements. We'll make changes. We'll do things, and we'll record them the next day, and leave. And then it's up to him to go and, you know, create the rest of the tracks. Right. So all of the guitar layers, deciding what he's going to do, what Delana's going to do. Uh, it. So it really, it's become kind of a, a lonelier process for him, which is probably why it takes, you know, so long to, to get vein records done nowadays. But I st- but he also ha- very much has an eye on the quality, right? It's not about quantity anymore for him. He's he putting more and more time into the crafting of his songs and the arrangement of his songs. In fact, some like some of the songs we we're, were talking about doing are just like, like Dark City is a good example. It's really difficult for us, you know, as a, you know, two guitar based and drum to, to do all the tracks that are on that track, right? Because he's kind of taking his recording craft and his arrangement craft to, you know, a different level. Uh, but it's also become kind of a, a lonelier process for him. Mm, interesting. But the, but the songwriting quality has not suffered. I mean, I like on that record, I love Rolling With the Punches, right? But to me, I, the standout on that record is uh, Long Goodbye. I just love that song so much. I found this to be an album I really had to
0: spend time with. I remember the first one or two times I heard it, wasn't wild about it it also was coming off of the heels of enough rope which i was out of my mind about so uh but what i did find on a positive note is that when i did spend time with it the songs really did grow on me uh considerably and now i rank it as one of the one of the the, the better albums in the whole catalog
2: well isn't it that you know if you look back at the history of your consumption of music? aren't those the records that we still listen to? Absolutely. You know, the one, the ones that we had to take time to, to build our relationship with?
0: Absolutely. And I that this album effectively, it was actually the only vain album that was like that. Most of them were pretty immediate, even, you know, when the style had changed somewhat mid-period. Uh, this one wasn't, but um, being a, a huge fan of the band from from day one, I, I was going to give it the time. I wasn't going to listen to it once or twice and say, move on, and it's a week album. And I did listen to it a lot and it's very solid. It's, I don't think there's a bad song on the album. It's a very solid yeah. album from beginning to end.
2: But again, there, there's some tracks on there that, you know, we're reaching back into our history. So long, long gone, show, show your love and inside out. We're all from a, uh, and sacrifice too. We're from, um, some of them were from the road crew era, and, and well, I think all of them were kind of from that era. Right oh, I didn't that know time. that. That's interesting. Yeah. I did, did yeah. not know
0: that. So if you could tell us a little bit now about um, the writing process of what's going on with a new record, is that something that fans could hold hope? For? Oh yeah. No,
2: we, we have been, we never stop recording. So the minute one record is done, Davy's Davies writing, you know, he's calling us up. We go in, we work on this stuff. But it's very, you know, it's a very slow process because of the logistics of where everyone's li- lives and their lives. Uh, but it's we are getting very close now. What with, with this is going to be at the ninth album. Uh, I th- we went into the studio what uh, two weeks ago to record the basic tracks for the very last track on the album. About half of the record's already mixed, uh, and he's working on. You know building the tracks for this last track that we did so you know i i know better than to throw dates out there i i've been burned by that too many times so uh but i can't see any reason why it won't be released next year nice okay well we're only a couple of months away from next year so.
1: yeah
0: hmm nice well that's something to look forward to for sure
2: yeah yeah <laughs>
1: So so uh, what does Vane have going on? We're recording this um, on a Monday night, and uh, I think we'll get it up this coming weekend. But I know you guys are playing the, uh, the whiskey out in uh, Hollywood on Friday night. And uh, beyond that, is there anything else uh, on the books as far as shows?
2: Uh, the only thing we have on the books as far as shows after that is the Monsters of Rock cruise next year. So I think that's the end of March, uh, like, into the beginning of April. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Yeah.
1: Now you yeah. guys just came off. You just played uh, M three this past uh, this past M three, right? The most current one. We did. And yeah. I think the was coldest M three in history was it? <laughs> oh my
2: god. It's I've freezing. been to a
1: few, but I I, I, I haven't been in the last several years. But I, I think you guys played about maybe three times or so.
2: Yes. Yeah. It has been three times. So. Nice.
1: And some of the cruises, yeah. like you said, you got that coming up. You've done the cruises before. Um, hmm. So, well, I guess that's something to look forward to, uh, come the, uh, when the new album finally does hit and, uh, hopefully you guys will do more shows. We got to get you guys to, uh, come to the East coast, you know, maybe come to New York, New Jersey.
2: Yeah. It's the, the, the problem is, is finances, right? <laughs> I mean, trying to actually, you know, people have lives and they have businesses and to make, you know, a tour worthwhile. Do you have to be out there for a while? Right, I mean, it it takes some time before you even break even, and then you get into profit territory. Nobody has the time uh, to take away from their businesses and their families to do that. So, because this is this is Vane is very much a a passion project, and and it always has been. Nobody's nobody nobody's getting you know well we're barely getting paid for stuff, uh, let alone you know being able to make a living at it. So uh, we, you know, this is very much something that we look at as, you know, our, our art and our legacy, and we want to share with people and we'd love to play for people all over the place, but you know, the numbers just don't pan out. Yeah, sure. Of course.
1: Well, Hey, um, Ashley, uh, I really appreciate this tonight. Tom appreciate anything else, Tom, that you wanted to add.
2: Uh, so I just want to, I just want to plug a couple things so so maybe we can build build the fan base a little bit definitely so we do have on facebook it's a private group but it's called the Vane army just you know if any of your listeners want to get into that private group just send the administrator a message you'll be let in the more the merrier we have a lot of fun on that on that space you know the band members are always chiming in oh cool uh our Instagram page is Established 1986 so V-A-I-N underscore E-S-T underscore 1986. Uh, go to either one of those places and, you know, just participate. Follow us and, you know, maybe we can get to the point where we can, you know, come and Play larger shows in different areas of the country.
1: Right, sure. No, we'll definitely plug all those on our uh, on our socials when uh, we get this posted. And uh,
0: yeah, and, and put our podcast up on the Vein Army to uh, there you go to help our numbers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, are you kidding me? Absolutely, sure. I guess you I know?
0: think any Vain fan uh, that's worth their salt will enjoy this podcast. Hopefully,
2: yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm very confident that they. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I know a couple that well. <laughs>
1: well, um, yeah, we hope we hope you had a good time tonight. We did for sure. Uh we appreciate the conversation and taking the time.
2: Absolutely.
0: Anytime. Thanks, Sasha. We'll be in touch. Take okay. care. Okay. All bye. right.
2: Take care. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye bye. Bye.